This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the Movement and Mobility series hosted by the New Books Network in association with the Mobilities and Methods Lab at the University of Illinois at Chicago. The Mobilities and Methods Lab New Books Network Partnership provides a platform for authors, readers, and their interlocutors to engage closely with questions of mobility and movement. My name is Benjamin Linder. I'm a research fellow at the International Institute for Asian Studies at Leiden University in the Netherlands. Today, I'm pleased to be joined by Dr. Sienna Craig, Associate Professor of Anthropology at Dartmouth College. Dr. Craig is the author of several books and many articles, in addition to multiple creative writing projects. Today, we will be discussing her new book, The Ends of Kinship, Connecting Himalayan Lives Between Nepal and New York, published in 2020 by the University of Washington Press as part of their Global South Asia series. The book explores the ambivalent transformations that have swept through the Mustang region of northern Nepal in recent decades, particularly in the face of increased migration. Shifting between fiction and ethnography and between Mustang and New York City, The Ends of Kinship considers how mobilities reshape people's sense of community, belonging, and obligation. I'm looking forward to the discussion. Sienna, welcome, and thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me, Ben. So in the introduction, you write, quote, The Ends of Kinship explores what it means for people from Mustang, including those who have migrated to New York, to care for one another, steward a homeland across time and space, remake households elsewhere, and confront distinct forms of happiness and suffering through this process. How do people honor and alter their shared responsibilities and senses of connection to one another and to a particular geography? not only in spite of, but even through the turning of the wheel of migration. How do different generations abide with one another, even when language fades and people struggle to comprehend?" End quote. So to begin our discussion, could you just say something about how you came to this set of questions and how the project was conceived and how you'd like to introduce it here? Sure, absolutely, and I appreciate uh, that framing. Um, this book really emerges out of very long-term relationships with people from Mustang spanning uh, about the past 25 years. I first went to Nepal in 1993 as an undergraduate studying abroad. And at that time, I went to Mustang in the first instance, uh, lived with a family there for about a month. And that began uh, what continues to this day as an inter- and multi-generational connection with people in place from the region. But as I continued to engage with Mustang, specifically uh, in and toward the ends of the 1990s and the beginnings of the 2000s, 
it began to be impossible to think about Mustang without thinking about New York. The first waves of migration from Mustang to New York City began around that time, 1997, 98, 99. And so at one level, this project began then, although it wasn't, of course, conceived as a research project at that moment, it was really conceived as uh, a commitment to friendships and to families that I had begun to know uh, during my time living in Mustang, and a, and a deep curiosity and a set of questions about how people would make and, and would continue to make these transitions between Nepal and New York. Um, and so the project really is born out of friendships, long-term relationships, and, and the, the need to in a sense, follow the, the, the lives and the lived experiences of people that I was close to. Yeah, that's great. Thanks. Can you maybe situate Mustang a bit by sketching its sort of particular geography and history for readers who might not be familiar with it? Absolutely. And, and that's, I, I would say, another reason why uh, or how this book emerged. It was initially also through some of my own senses of, of the dissonance or the, the, the disparate nature of life between uh, or, or uh, um, in relation to, on the one hand, a high Himalayan uh, enclave. Mustang is one of uh, the 77 districts of Nepal. It's up on the Tibetan border. It's sandwiched between the Dolpa region to the west and the Manang region or Nishang region to the east. Um, it's a place that... Uh, by, by many standards, would be considered very remote or, as Anat Singh might put it, an, you know, an out-of-the-way place. Um, and yet Mustang has been a, a hub for trans-Himalayan trade, um, cultural and political exchange for centuries. Um, but, but it is uh, a rural place, um, a high Himalayan place, and a place that looks and feels and sounds very, very different than uh, Brooklyn and Queens in New York City. Um, Mustang uh, is, uh, encompasses a, uh, what was for, for many centuries a Himalayan kingdom, uh, the kingdom of Lo. Uh, and so Upper Mustang, or the northern part of the district, um, was not only ruled uh, by uh, a lineage, a successive lineage of kings, the last of whom uh, passed away in 2016. His name was Jigme Dorje Palbarbista, um, and it's to him that this book is dedicated. But Mustang uh, is also a place that has been uh, very important in the, the contemporary geopolitics of Nepal. Uh, it was the region in from 1960 to 1974 in which the Kampa, or the Tibetan Resistance Army, based themselves during the uh, essentially guerrilla campaigns that they waged against the People's Liberation Army in and around uh, China's annexation of Tibet after 1959. Uh, Mustang, in part because of that history, uh, ha- was a res- restricted area, still is a restricted area to foreigners. It was closed. The northern parts of the district were closed until 1992. So right around the time that I began going to Mustang, it was also opening up to tourism. The southern, more, more southernmost parts of the district uh, have been open to tourism and to trade of various sorts for, for much longer. And p- 
part of that region encompasses the very famous Annapurna con uh, Conservation Area and the Annapurna Trekking Circuit. The culturally Tibetan parts of Mustang are again in the north and the northeastern parts of the district. And uh, other ethnic groups, predominantly Takali, uh, live in the southernmost parts of the district. But again, it's been a, way, a wayfaring place, a, a thoroughfare for trade for a very long time. And in that sense, also in relation to this, this theme of mo mobilities and movement, migration is not new to people from Mustang. Um, it is a place that for centuries has been uh, a hub of, of trans-Himalayan trade, as I mentioned, salt for grain um, and other commodities uh, going along the north-south corridor of the Kaligandaki River. But it's also been a place where people have out-migrated basically since the early 1980s for different forms of wage labor uh, and petty commodities trade. So many of the primarily men who I first knew to go to New York had actually already spent uh, a stint of their adult life in other places, in Hong Kong uh, or in North India, in um, Korea or Japan, in different capacities as wage laborers. And so, uh, again, this form of migration as a, as a life stage, as an economic strategy was not new. But as people began to move to New York um, for principally for work at the outset and, and more and more for other things, for education as well now, um, uh, there began to be things that were qualitatively different about these moves to New York. And I imagine we'll talk more about that uh, as the interview goes on. But hopefully that situates Mostang a little bit within the context of, of Nepal um, and a bit in the context of, of, the, of neighboring relations, both with China and with India. Yeah, absolutely. That's great. And one of the things that really comes through in the book is this continuity. So you're you're very clear to say that this isn't a radically new phenomenon that people from Mustang are transnationally mobile. And in fact, they have been for quite some time as traders and pilgrims and things like that. Um, so in recent decades, as you said, many from Mustang have ended up in New York City. And you, you touched on this a little bit, but I wonder if you could just dive a little deeper into what are some of the forces that have driven out migration from Mustang generally, and what are the forces that brought so many to New York City in particular? Uh, great question. There are many factors, both push and pull factors, driving out migration from Mustang. One of the things that I trace in the book is the relationship between education-driven out-migration of young people and wage-labor migration of uh, parents and grandparents uh, of those young people. And so one of the things that uh, was occurring when I first came to Mustang, again in the early 1990s, was that individuals and families who had experienced a first wave, if you will, of wage-labor migration abroad, again to places like Japan and Korea, were... Uh, coming back after stints in those places uh, with cash, with a, a, a broader sense of, of um, different aspects of the world and also the world of, of urban Nepal, um, and seeing that uh, opportunities for their children, perhaps 
lay outside of the district. Uh, this was also, of course, occurring at a moment um, of great political significance for Nepal as a country. So in 1990, Nepal experienced its first democratic people's revolution, or John Andalan, which ushered in uh, an era of multi-party democracy and uh, an effort to reclaim elements of um, non-Hindu, non-Baon Chetri, sort of non-mainstream Nepali culture and identity and language. And, and for people from Mustang, this was significant as uh, culturally Tibetan folks who had uh, succeeded in many ways um, as traders and succeeded in, in many ways financially, but still were, were marginalized politically in, in many senses in Nepal and, and also geographically in terms of services like good quality education or healthcare. And so it was a sort of a combination of all of these things um, a little bit more cash coming in through primarily fathers or grandfathers or uncles who had done a stint abroad, um, a sense that Nepal at some level was, was opening up to new models of civil society, a notion that the best quality education could be found not at home uh, in Mustang but outside of the district, that, that drove sort of uh, a, a one significant form of, of the turning of the wheel of migration, as, I, as I've put it, or the first cora, uh, the first uh, circumambulation um, uh, of, um, of migration. So young people were leaving to go to school in Pokhara, in Kathmandu, in North India, uh, and in other places. And that that departure meant that they were also leaving, uh, in a sense, a, a cultural framework, a sociolinguistic framework, a sense of lived geography and embodied experience that related to their home communities. This isn't to say that all of a sudden that all went away. In many ways, boarding schools for high mountain communities from places like Mustang became second homes and, and, and second families for young people who were brought to places like Kathmandu and Pokhara, but it did transform the, the sense of possibility for many families about what they ought to do and what the future looked like and how and in what ways um, those educational aspirations might fuel further uh, economic goals um, or possible life ways for future generations. And so this was happening. And then at the same time, um, there were initial movements toward New York, and those initial movements toward New York can't be decoupled from Mustang's position as, and Mustangi's position as both Nepali citizens and people who are culturally Tibetan. Uh, again, this is uh, on the heels of uh, a moment when His Holiness the Dalai Lama has won the Nobel Peace Prize uh, in 1989, a moment when Tibet and Tibetanness is becoming more uh, uh, understood or, or at least more um, popular amongst uh, Western culture, generally speaking. Um, it's also a moment when um, Tibetan refugee resettlement begins uh, in earnest in different ways to the U.S. So all of these things are also occurring around this time in, in the 1990s. And so um, the first wave of people from Mustang to go to New York uh, was also facilitated by their proximity to um, 
uh, and their capacity, in a sense, to, to pass or to identify as um, culturally Tibetan people. Added to this also was the opening up of Upper Mustang to tourism and trekking and a kind of cultural exchange that began to occur there uh, with people coming from all over the world, including places like New York, to visit what has often um, been pitched as a sort of little Tibet in, in the form of, of uh, the monasteries and the cultural traditions of Mustang. So all of this kind of came together uh, in ways that uh, allowed people from Mustang to get visas to come to the U.S. And for lots of reasons, I, I, I don't in the book go into detail about how that process works, and I, and I also don't want to talk about it in detail. But suffice it to say that they were able to come to the U.S. and um, to begin to make lives for themselves. And as is you know, the case in, in many parts of, um, or many migration histories, once you have uh, a node or a family member or um, a small group of people from a village that have settled and made their way in a new place, that becomes uh, sort of a, a beck and call um, and a safe harbor and um, a, a set of networks that facilitate further migration. And so that's very much what has happened in the case of Mustangis in, in New York. Um, there are other layers to this story, including the much more recent um, uh, experiences of migration connected to the Nepal earthquakes in 2015, and also a number of people who migrated uh, quite legitimately as political uh, asylum seekers during the 10 years of civil war in Nepal from 1996 to 2006, and uh, the turmoil, political and otherwise, that that spilled out from, from that moment in time. Although Mustang itself was not a site of a lot of conflict, armed conflict, during the Civil War, it was certainly a space in which people were subject to a range of new forms of, of political violence and oppression. Um, and that also, like for so many Nepalis across the country and under different circumstances, also fueled uh, what has become uh, a very large tide of outmigration from Nepal to, to other places. So Mustangis are somewhat unique, though not exclusive at all, uh, in, in landing themselves in New York. But the, this, this moment in the 1990s and the early 2000s of Nepalis leaving Nepal um, for lives elsewhere is not at all unique to Mustang. Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, you mentioned briefly in that answer this phrase, the Quora of migration, which is kind of a key theme and a key framing device throughout the book. Um, the way you're spelling it, K-H-O-R-A, Kora, is a blend of two other words and concepts from Tibetan. Can you describe uh, this etymology and what you mean by the Kora of migration? Absolutely. Yeah, um, this, along with the, the sort of the concept or what I mean by the ends of kinship, plural, um, are the two, I would say, um, core theoretical or conceptual contributions that I'm hoping that this book is making to anthropology and beyond. Um, Kora is, K-H-O-R-A, as, as you spelled it out as well, is, is my attempt at an, an imperfect English language gloss for two distinct words and two distinct concepts in, uh, in Tibetan. The first, uh, uh, which I could... Um, transliterate as K-O-R-A, Kora, is um, circumambulation. It's the moving around a sacred space or a sacred object. It's the act of walking down the begin beginning and the ends of the days with people 
uh, from your community uh, in prayer. It's a, it's a way of abiding with people um, in and through a reflective practice that, in a sense, illustrates the second concept, which is korwa, um, or cyclic existence, what is known in Sanskrit as samsara. And so it's the turning of the wheel of life from birth through different stages of life to death and transformation. And um, I chose to think with these two concepts uh, and write with these two concepts in this book for several reasons. The first of which is that these are, these are ways, these are vernacular ways that people from Mustang talk about their own experiences and um, frame and understand um, the experiences that they're having of migration and social change. And at the same time, also, they're, they're things that people do, they're ways of being in the world, uh, forms of action that are meaningful and important to the people that, uh, that I'm writing about and the people to whose experience I want to um, lend as much as I can the greatest fidelity. Um, but these concepts, I think, also are useful in a lower C Catholic sense in getting at what migration, mobility, diaspora, transnationalism also can mean, um, but in ways that emphasize circularity, interconnection, um, and the passing of time in relation to the movement through space that I think can sometimes be, if not missed, then just uh, elided a little bit in, um, in terms like diaspora or transnationalism that sometimes uh, tend to feel a little bit disembodied um, from those lived experiences of movement or that can, although there's lots of writing against this, you know, or that can tend to sort of slip into an idea of, of a linearity or a one-way trajectory. And I think my experiences with people from Mustang have taught me that um, migration and, and mobility is always circular um, and cyclical. Uh, and that then, you know, putting these concepts to work to think about these experiences of migration and social change began to make a lot of sense. Um, the last thing I'll say about these concepts is that I think it's important um, as an anthropologist today, working today, to not limit how and where we see or find or delineate theory to concepts that come from continental philosophy, um, but to actually allow uh, ways of being and ways of understanding phenomenon that perhaps in another anthropological moment would have been sort of cordoned off or reduced to a space called the ethnographic or an, you know, an ethnographic illustration or a mode of thick description, but rather to reclaim those and say, no, actually those are ways of conceptualizing the world and other uh, ways of being or, or other cultural um, spaces or dynamics can benefit from thinking, for instance, with, with and through Cora. Yeah, that's great. Um, and continuing this theme about the cyclical, embodied, sort of emplaced nature of movement, throughout the book you kind of alternate between scenes from New York City, scenes from the Nepali cities of Pokhara and Kathmandu, and scenes from within Mustang itself. Um, could you say something about how life has changed for those who have left Mustang, either for New York or elsewhere, 
And how has it changed for those who remain in Mustang or have or who have returned to Mustang? Uh, things have have changed dramatically in many senses, um, uh, primarily in how people quite literally spend their days. So imagine that you grew up uh, in a village in Mustang, beginning your life um, before you're sent off to boarding school in Kathmandu as uh, the child in your family responsible for the family goats. And you, you grow up on the, the pastures and the hillsides uh, around your, your Himalayan village. And then at another point, you were transported to the much different reality of, uh, let's say, Kathmandu or Pokhara, uh, with its heat and its dust and its uh, mixture of many different languages and cultures and its Nepali national curriculum. And then from there, you find yourself in, the, uh, in, in this intensely dense urban area uh, in a country that um, is also quite different uh, than any of the places that you've spent time in before. You might be living, again, with people that speak your own language and that are familiar to you, but all of a sudden, instead of the canyons of, and the fluted cliffs of, of Mustang, you have the canyons and the cliffs of skyscrapers in Manhattan where you go to work in Whole Foods. And uh, the daily commute is not one done by, by foot or by horse or, or later by motorcycle or jeep but is instead one done by climbing on and off the seven train and, and shooting yourself from Manhattan over to Queens um, on the subway, along with hundreds, thousands of, of people from all over the world um, into and out of one of the most linguistically diverse spaces on the planet. Um, the, you know, the, the changes are, are radical and intense. Um, or, you know, for women going from uh, a situation in which you, your, your primary job, uh, again, may have been connected to household agriculture and to raising children to uh, either being a caretaker for other people's children in New York while your parents or in-laws perhaps take care of your children back in Nepal or, uh, again, going from uh, an environment in which... Um, categories of beauty and, and the ways that women do things to their bodies look one way to uh, a, a, a life that's built around categories of beauty and things that women do to their bodies in a very different sense by becoming a nail salon technician instead of uh, someone um, running a family farm. Um, and, you know, these kinds of radical transitions are, of course, not unique to Mustangis as migrants. Some people are all over the world uh, on the move and, and making these, these shifts and are capable of making these shifts um, with a great degree of grace. Um, and yet the, the shifts are dramatic. And I think part of what I am really interested in in these, the, the way that I write the ethnography in a more fragmented sense is to try to get at some of that, the jarring nature of these differences, but then also the ways that people work so hard to stay connected to each other, to describe their lives um, uh, from one place to the other. Um, and also to think about what gets left out in, in those descriptions of lives um, between Nepal and New York. Yeah. You mentioned briefly the sort of fragmentary structure that you approach the book with. And so I guess we should say it's organized into six parts. And each of those six parts 
consists of basically two pillars, one fictional short story and one ethnographic chapter that both speak to a similar theme. Um, and since part of this channel is devoted to methods, I'm interested in your choice to foreground creative fictional short stories in the book. Did you feel that writing in a fictional register expanded what you could say beyond, say, traditional ethnography? In a word, yes. Um, uh, absolutely. And I felt that uh, it was important to try to get at, um, with as much uh, nuance and fidelity as I, as I could, um, the, the fragmentary nature um, of life uh, at the ends of kinship between uh, New York and Nepal, and also the ways that people work so hard to stitch those lives together. Um, as a writer, and as someone who enjoys writing, enjoys the practice of writing, I felt that short fiction um, was something that that I wanted to try in this context. I'd, I'd done it before in other contexts, but never, never in the course of um, a, a book like this. Um, in part because it, I think fiction can allow us to see social truths or to write through social truths that are more difficult to get at in. Um, uh, even more experimental ethnography, let alone uh, a more con conventional form of ethnography. And yet ethnography remains incredibly useful for many, many reasons. In part, um, it reveals the limits of knowing and it reveals how and in what ways um, I as an anthropologist or others come to understand what we, what we know of a place or a group of people or a set of questions and, um, and so put together, it seems to me that it produces, if not a fuller picture, then just um, a different way of trying to cultivate empathy, curiosity, respect, um, and, and, you know, an abiding sense of what we cannot know. Um, and that was, that was really part of what my, my goal was with, with this book. Um, so the choice of fiction was both an um, aesthetic uh, or an affective choice, a creative choice. Um, it was also in some ways an ethical choice. I felt that um, certain aspects of um, the, what, what I had come to know over 25 years of, of friendship and distinct moments of ethnographic fieldwork across that time and across place um, you know, some of the things um, that were at the forefront of Friends from Mustang's Minds uh, were not necessarily things I felt like I could or wanted to discuss in a strictly ethnographic mode. Um, and yet I also wanted to make sure that, um, for instance, points of conflict that are occurring over younger generations or between younger generations of Mustang Americans uh, and their parents or grandparents who have very different, for, for many um, logical reasons, very different understandings, for instance, of race in America um, and struggles with, um, you know, trying to, to uh, reckon with those kinds of issues or around 
um, the, uh, the issues around love marriages versus arranged marriages or what, who a good partner is for somebody. These are, these are loaded issues that in a small community, if I were only to write about those ethnographically, um, even with pseudonyms, that wouldn't be enough um, to, uh, to, I think, create the space to tell the story without um, overexposing people that I care about. So that was part of the, those were all, you know, sort of together in the motivations. Um, and, on the, and on the ethnographic side, you know, um, writing in the first person, writing in a fragmentary sense, um, sort of, a, or, or more, more than fragments, sort of a mo- mosaic kind of sense of patching together, oh, here's a moment in New York, here's a moment in, um, in Mustang, here's a moment in Kathmandu. Uh, I think helped to reveal the ways that many people from Mustang are indeed living their lives, um, moving in between these different registers. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Yeah, I mean, while the distinction between the short stories and the ethnographic chapters is always clear and not in doubt, it also struck me while reading that there's a kind of ethnographic depth to all the fiction stories and also a kind of lyrical and literary quality to all the ethnographic nonfiction um, I wonder if you're willing, if you could maybe read some examples, if you have some excerpts on hand. Um, and then in terms of process, if you could just reflect on how you thought about this distinction. Absolutely. Um, and I really appreciate that question and, and the opportunity to read a little bit. Um, so, uh, yes, I think what I'll do is I'm going to read a, t- a little section from a, a short story that's in the section of the book on called um, Going for Education, um, and it's from a, uh, a story called Letters for Mother. And so we find a, in this story a young woman named Wang Mo, who's now living in New York, um, but who came from very humble backgrounds uh, and beginnings in Lomantang, which is the capital of uh, the Kingdom of Lo in Upper Mustang. Um, and uh, this is a story very much about parents and children, um, mothers and daughters. Um, and so she is um, sort of discovering, in a sense, who, who, who she is uh, in this section. Now that Wang Mo has become a parent herself, Such memories of her youth carry a different weight. From the relative comfort and security of a one-bedroom walk-up in Sunnyside, she takes a sip of sweet tea and closes her eyes. She thinks of the tiny two-bedroom dwelling that had been in her childhood home. It was a crook in the elbow of Montang, tucked into the neighborhood known as Potaling. It had a hearth, a place for sleeping, a nook for storing grain, one small window, and a wooden ledge that served as a shrine. The interior shone a lacquered black by candlelight, painted by years of dung smoke. A poplar trunk into which had been carved footholds to form a ladder led to a rammed earth roof that stitched this dwelling to her neighbor's homes 
and a row of brambles partitioning the differences between them. In the summertime, Wang Mo used to scamper across the stacked firewood divides between houses, stealing handfuls of cheese set out to dry on other people's roofs. She recalled her mother's heart-shaped face underneath a tight woolen cap, the dull black braid that hung down her back, the fraying edge of her woven apron. Her mother said that their family had been poor from the beginning of the beginning. Both of her grandparents had died when her own mother was hardly a teenager, her grandfather from drink and her grandmother from work and an illness of the heart. All these years later, Wang Mo still wondered what this really meant. Her mother's elder brother and only sibling had been killed in a road accident in Lucknow during a season of winter trade. This further propelled her mother into an orphaned indentured servitude. She worked for one of the noble families of Montang, weeding fields, harvesting grain, collecting firewood and manure for fuel. Wang Mo vaguely understood that she was not allowed to know her father because he had power, because he did not claim his paternity but she would never hear the story of her father from her mother. Instead, it took two decades and 10,000 miles before someone laid bare the circumstances of her birth. It was at a Losar party late in the evening during her first year in New York. She'd been in the bathroom, smoothing her chuba in the mirror. An older woman emerged from one of the stalls. Instead of adjusting her outfit, fixing her hair clip, or washing her hands, she just stared at Wangmo with a look that hooked incredulity to compassion. Whose daughter are you? The woman asked. Her speech was slightly slurred as if a shot of Johnny Walker Black Label meant for the men had made it into her coke. Perhaps it was the slow medicine of drink that made the woman pause, that made her notice Wang Mo in the first place. There was no escaping kinship here. Wang Mo knew that the woman expected the name of her father, but she gave a different answer. My mother is no longer, she said. She was from Montang. The woman fixed her gaze on Wang Mo's features. She was poor from that little corner house, right? I remember her and the family she worked for. You must be that nobleman's Niemo. And Niemo is an illegitimate daughter. Your eyes are just like his. How old are you? About 20? I remember how hard she worked in their fields. Ninjie, your mother died when you were young. I knew her brother, the one who was killed in India. But you found a good foreign sponsor for school in Kathmandu, right? At least you got an education. The woman gestured to her forehead. She did not have to say anything for Wang Mo to know what she meant. Karma was written here, inscribed in invisible ink on the swath of skin above the eyes. And now, here we all are, rich and poor, yoked to the promise of money in New York. In this place of public secrets, a woman she had never met, of whom she had no memory, had just succeeded in giving voice to so many things that Wang Mo wanted not to hear, not to name, and yet ached to know. She had done so with a turn of phrase that dizzied Wang Mo, but that also made her strangely satisfied with the ways their language could harness truth. Pleased with her discovery, this falling into place of another piece in the mosaic of kinship that stretched between Nepal and New York, the woman now seemed disinterested in Wang Mo. She adjusted her apron and headed out the door. Before that encounter, Wang Mo had often wondered if the man this woman named was her father, but she had never received direct confirmation. The moment opened up so many emotions. 
from outrage to compassion. As she used to do with Maya when they had lain awake in their dormitory cots, she finds herself spinning stories about people she did not know, the people who were her parents. Um, so I'll stop there with this one um, and uh, shift to uh, a little excerpt from uh, a nonfiction chapter. This is um, from a chapter called Bringing Home the Trade uh, in a section of the book called Subsistence and Strategy. And this section is really sort of about the hows and whys and wherefores of, of migration. How, how does um, economic and social life work? Um, and work out in and through uh, the Cora of, of movement between Nepal and New York. So this section is called the Ex-Monk Jeep Mafia. It is early autumn and high tourist season in Mustang, 2014. Monsoon has given way to open skies. Billowing cumulus clouds cast earthly shadows that echo shade. Dust is everywhere. The motorable road in Mustang has birthed a new kind of politics, one of fossil fuels and right-of-way, driving schedules, landslide repair, and ticket tariffs. Since an ongoing dispute between drivers from Souk and those from Tsele has yet to be resolved, we walk the distance between these two villages. We sling our backpacks on at the Souk Jeep Depot, wrap our heads in scarves against the wind, and walk toward the Mustang Gate. At this spot, the mighty Kali Gandaki River contracts from fingers to fist, its flow forced through a narrow arc, punched through a sedimentary cliff of ochre rock. The river runs high. We cross a metal bridge, made for feet but passable for hooves as well as motorcycle and mountain bike tires. Three jeeps are parked on the far side of the river. One is getting a bath. Its stiff metal doors yawn open. A young man with a K-pop hairdo and sun-bleached I Heart Nepal t-shirt is wiping down the back window. It seems a futile act, bespeaking pride and desperation by turns. Another young man reclines on the hood of his vehicle, eyes closed. Anyone going up? No one calls out. There are six of us, two foreigners and four locals. We hope that one of these jeeps will ferry us to Tsele, where we will buy tickets for the local jeep service to the village of Killing. No answer. Nawang tries again, closer this time to the napping driver. Hey, you going up? The driver stirs, but just enough to wave his hand and signal, nope. Not our shift, the other driver answers. The rag in his hand is soaked in river water. Besides, we can't cut you a ticket down here. You have to walk up. Usually generous and good-natured, Nawang grumbles as we begin the vertical climb from the riverside to the village. They're just waiting for that big tourist group behind us because they'll be able to charge them 3,000 rupees for a 10-minute ride. We arrive sweaty and with grit in our teeth at the trekking lodge that doubles as the jeep counter. I buy Cokes and Orange Fanta for the group. We run our heads under the village water tap and wipe off the dust, now mud, from our faces. Nalong heads off to buy our passage to Killing. He returns a few minutes later, clutching a thin pink piece of paper, our collective ticket. They wouldn't sell us seats on the afternoon local, he says. They made us book a private jeep, said they only had room for three more people on the local, but really it's because they know we're here with two foreigners. Nalong motions to me and my student, Hannah, who has accompanied me on this trip to Lowe. 
With more tourists coming just behind, they can charge what they want. No one looks agitated for a moment, but then breaks into a smile. But it's okay. They tried to charge us 8,000 rupees. Then I started talking to the boy behind the counter. I thought I knew his face. And you know what? He was in the same class as my younger brother. His parents sent him to Penorimpache's monastery down in South India when he was 12. Now he's 22 and an ex-monk, Talok. So anyway, we started talking and he charged us 5,000 only. Half the drivers are Talok, Kunzum responds. Given the work she's been doing to build a new community school in Kami, she navigates this stretch of Mustang Highway often. Kunzum does not suffer fools, and she has had to negotiate continuously to get building supplies and provisions up valley. Fucking Talog Mafia, she mutters. They spend the first part of their lives earning merit, and the second part of their lives swindling people out of money. But, Didi, how else are they going to make a living? Nawang responds. His initial agitation has melted away, and he's gotten curious about this situation, its economic and social implications. Although he's lived in New York for the better part of a decade, Nawang remains attuned to life in Mustang. Sure, they need to make money, and I don't really care if they leave the monastery, says Kunzum. Half of them were sent off by their parents as soon as they could wipe their own behinds. Most don't know where they belong, but they've ended up back here. At least they got some education, she says, her voice softening. That ticket seller told me that most of the drivers have also tried and failed to go out, Nawang adds, out being a euphemism for migration abroad. He has two sisters in New York and a cousin in France. More are going to France these days. He tried twice to get a visa for the U.S. and failed. Now he'll drive for others until he can afford his own Jeep or save enough money to build a house in Pokhara. After all those years he lived in India, he doesn't really feel good in the mountains anymore. That's what happens when you get the abroad virus and you don't get the visa injection, said Kunzum. You feel sick wherever you are. So, uh, so I'll stop reading the, there. Um, and yeah, uh, Ben, do you have any thoughts or questions sort of after that? Thank you for reading that. The, the Wang Mo story was actually one of my favorite parts of the book, definitely my favorite of the fictional portions. And yeah, I think it just shows the way you've managed to harness these two different genres to create such uh, texture into the things you're writing about. Um, so thank you for reading that. Sure. Um, so the book, as we said, is divided into six parts, and these parts sort of roughly align with different benchmarks of the life cycle, again, continuing your theme of the cyclical nature of existence. Um, and so part one, you lay out the changing norms and challenges surrounding childbirth, um, and you explore how these are being increasingly reconfigured through migration, but also through public health interventions. And I believe this is part of a larger parallel research project you have going on. Um, can you just say something about how childbirth has changed in the region over the past few decades? Absolutely, yeah. Um, so um, I've been working with the biological anthropologist Cynthia Bell um, since 2012, and also with Jeff Childs, a, a cultural and demographic anthropologist who works in a neighboring region of the Himalaya called Nupri on some of these questions um, of women's uh, reproductive histories. And so that has brought very much into the, into focus the ways that um, pregnancy and childbirth uh, and the structure of families really have, have changed pretty dramatically in Musang. Um, 
one of the ways that childbirth has changed or, or pregnancy and childbirth has changed is, is quite simply that um, people are having far fewer children. Um, since, the, since the 1990s, um, uh, contraception of different forms have been uh, more available to women from Mustang. And so part of what uh, I have seen in, in various moments of fieldwork and, and research is a shift from uh, a norm where a woman might have had eight to ten pregnancies, five to six living you know, children who, who uh, lived beyond infancy, and maybe four to five children or three to four children who live into adulthood, um, now the, the, the norm really for women under, under 40 and especially women in their twenties and thirties is to not imagine, uh, having more than two or three children far, far, uh, fewer women are having, uh, larger families. And again, this, this in part is related to, um, on the one hand, um, the ways that migration and mobility have facilitated access to urban hospitals um, and to different forms of biomedical care, but uh, it also has to do with the different ways that women are spending their lives and spending their re- reproductive lives, uh, including having new and different or, or relatively new and different access to education um, and to a certain extent, uh, greater choice or greater control over when and who they marry. Of course, that's not always the case, but um, these, are, these are all pieces of the puzzle that have been shifting quite dramatically um, over the course of, of one to two generations, really. Yeah, great. So then in part two, moving on from birth, you enter the next uh, stage of the life cycle, which is the theme of education, and you note how ambivalent and contested the idea of education is often along generational lines. So you have monastic educations, you have state schools in Nepal, you have private schools elsewhere in Nepal, and then of course the educational opportunities abroad that you alluded to earlier. Could you just say something about the kind of ambivalence surrounding education and particularly its effect on the relationships and language and general social fabric of Mustang? Absolutely. Um, I think that, you know, and I say this as a parent myself as well as an anthropologist, I think that sometimes uh, we we forget or, or parents forget that education is actually not just meant to be a kind of inculcation in uh, doing things the same way that that your your previous generations did, but actually is a process of change um, and a process of social formation. And so I think that there was this sensibility that somehow you could send your children out to boarding school and still retain a kind of consonance in uh, who these young people were with yourself um, uh, because that's just the way social life was supposed to work, and I think that um, in in many in many instances that presumption has, of course, been uh, undone by or challenged by lived experience. Um, uh, in terms of language, you know, um, people would leave Mustang for, let's say, a boarding school in Kathmandu, where there were many different variants of Tibetan at play on the school playground, um, but the unifying language uh, became Nepali. And so, uh, and in some cases English, but but uh, often less so. And in, and in other cases, standard Tibetan. Um, uh, 
uh, which is, of course, not the same as the, the Tibetan variants that are spoken um, in Mustan. And so there's a kind of, on the one hand, um, uh, nationalistic acculturation that can occur. On the other hand, a kind of standardization of Tibetan cultural forms that, uh, that I think in some ways came... Um, in spite of everything, as, as kind of a shock um, uh, to, to older generations when it actually started to become apparent that, oh, wow, you know, my kids and I can't understand each other. We don't see eye to eye. They don't know what our reality is like. And, um, and for, for the young people, too, experiencing that kind of disjuncture um, at the same time as also feeling of course, a deep sense of, um, in many in many senses, duty, obligation, uh, gratitude, but also different forms of loneliness and alienation uh, that that come from being divided from family in and through education. Um, people like my friend Kunzum, who um, who is one of the sort of core relationships that I that I that are woven through the book, um, and that I mentioned in that uh, uh, ex monk Jeep, Jeep mafia section. She and other people uh, have been trying to sort of turn the tide a bit uh, in this last decade in Mustang. Um, and, and there are examples from other parts of the High Himalaya where um, the goal is now to try to provide higher quality, at least primary education in Mustang itself um, to, to sort of guard against some of the kinds of changes that the previous generation um, or two have experienced uh, but that is also often an uphill battle. There's still very much a sense um, of social prestige tied to the idea of going out. Um, and, um, and yet there's also, again, a lot of work being done by, by young people, both in Nepal and in New York, to try to uh, continue to, to resist or complicate that, that narrative. Um, uh, a young woman I'm close to who's... Um, had the good fortune of being educated through, uh, through a BA uh, in the U.S. Uh, in early childhood education has become a real leader in, in organizing things like uh, Sunday schools or, or you know, Mustang culture and language classes, as has Nawang, uh, again, one of the other um, core friendships and core relationships that, that guide the book. So there's not one narrative there, but education is definitely messy. Yeah. So then in part three, moving on um, from education, you move into livelihood strategies. Um, and you've already sort of talked about what some of the people from Mustang are doing in the United States and elsewhere abroad. Um, and you've also spoken a little bit about the decline in small-scale agriculture. But I just wonder how have the remittances that this sort of migration generates, how has that transformed life back in Mustang? Profoundly. Um, one of the things that, that I've heard many times is, is a variation on this phrase, each household needs one person in New York in order to keep the household going in Nepal. Um, and that has everything to do with the flow of, of cash uh, back from, from New York to, to Nepal, not just to Mustang even, also to relatives in Kathmandu or Pokhara or to pay those boarding school fees, for example. Um, so the remittance economy has been profound. Um, it has led in some cases to, uh, again, a, a growth in 
aspects of the tourism industry. So building hotels, um, not out of so much local rammed earth materials and, and um, the little trekking lodges that you might have encountered uh, a decade or two ago along the Annapurna Circuit or, or up in Upper Mustang, but rather uh, large cement structures that are uh, that have indoor toilets and uh, all the rest that are that are trying to cater to a certain idea of what um, foreign and and increasingly actually urban Nepali tourists might feel they need or want when they go to a place like Mustang. So investing money earned in New York back into Mustang in tourism industries, as well as in um, cash crop industries like the Apple industry has become very uh, popular, of course. And this is sort of another uh, another question or another issue, but COVID has uh, upended a lot of that or, or challenged a lot of the assumptions on the ways that remittance um, economies are, are working. But pre-COVID, um, before nine months ago, um, this was very much um, the logic. Yeah, and one of the things that you say throughout the book and mentioned briefly earlier is that this kind of expanded and extended and accelerated migration creates very real intergenerational strains in all different ways. And this dynamic is really pronounced in parts four and part five. Um, so in the former, you describe shifting gender relations and marriage norms. And then in the latter, part five, you attend more to questions of Mustang's geography and people's connection to the landscape. So marriage patterns are changing. New transport infrastructures are being built all the time. New resources are being sought. Um, and so many people you spoke with and that you quote in the book um, fear that all of this contributes to a kind of dissolution of traditional Mustang by threatening its cultural coherence. What do you make of those narratives and how did you approach that thorny topic when you sat down to write about it? It's a great question um, and a really good summary of, of what I'm trying to get at in those two sections of the book. Um, what do I make of these narratives? I mean, I think that they are deeply true to many people um, and not just older generations. Uh, I think that they're, you know, the, the work of of loss and senses of nostalgia are there uh, in interesting ways and different spaces across the generations um, uh, from, you know, Mustang-related Facebook posts uh, of of young people who have perhaps not been in Mustang since they were children, um, if if ever, uh, talking about... um, uh, you know, this potential loss of culture or the ways that things are changing to, to the old, you know, um, uh, Mimi, you know, grandfather in a village sort of bemoaning the fact that he's sitting there alone. Um, uh, so I think that that's important to note that this is not um, uh, uh, the, the senses of, of loss or fragmentation are not just felt at one point in the generational arc. Um, they're felt across it. And yet at the same time, and, and this gets to your second part of your question, sort of how, how did I try to um, uh, approach all these tricky issues when I sat down to write? Um, I think part of the answer to that is to show that, that this is a both-and world, that on the one hand, yes, um, loss is and, and transformation 
uh, is part of what is occurring. And yet on the other hand, or in addition, there are also all of these moments of um, uh, people working really hard to sustain, to reinvent, um, and to shore up relations to language, culture, place. Um, so one example of that, for instance, is um, uh, a, a person who actually doesn't feature directly in the book, but who was in my mind when I was writing that chapter, Letters for Mother, or the story, Letters for Mother, um, talks about, to me at different points, how, you know, having grown up in the boarding school milieu, she felt she lost Loke, her, you know, her local Tibetan variant. And actually in coming to New York, she's made a real concerted effort to gain it back and to um, make sure that she is only talking to her village mates and her friends and to her, and to her daughter in Loke um, as a way to sort of reclaim that part of who she is um, very consciously. And um, there are other stories like that that I could mention, but I think that, you know, the trick for me for writing about it was to try to um, be fairly even-handed uh, as much as I could around um, these points of paradox or dissonance or loss with the, the points of wonder and transformation and possibility that, uh, <clears throat> that the core of migration has allowed. Yeah, that's a perfect segue to the last uh, substantive chapter of the book, part six, um, where following the lifestyle arc of the whole book, it turns to death, um, both physical deaths of people, but also the possible death of traditional lifeways in Mustang. Um, but throughout, you're really careful not to present some simplistic narrative of external modernity threatening to destroy some internally coherent tradition. Um, and you note all these ways in which the Mustang community in Mustang, but also in New York, work hard to fortify and reforge connections. So, for example, you mentioned the the friend of yours who's now teaching Sunday school and some language courses. What are some of these strategies being deployed to maintain a sense of Mustang, both in New York and in Nepal? Um, I think that many of them circle around um, or, or vacillate between formal structures like uh, a Sunday school or uh, Tibetan uh, language classes or, or other um, uh, religious teaching opportunities for elders who are living in, in New York to uh, far less formal spaces. Um, you know, I mentioned this one woman and her effort to just make it part of her daily practice to, to speak her language, right? And I think that those strategies are, are um, present in many, many households. Uh, I think some of the other ways that uh, people are continuing to fortify connections are through um, different social media channels. So I have, uh, not surprisingly perhaps, so I have a section in the book that talks about WeChat. And, um, you know, one of the ways that, uh, for instance, one of my first uh, Tibetan and, and Loke language teachers, who is an ex-monk who lives uh, in Queens um, tries to continue to to feed that part of himself and also sustain that part of his community is by having um, a, a space on WeChat where he continually posts 
um, voice memos, but also things he's written in Tibetan that are detailing um, Mustang uh, cultural and religious history, for example. And there's a wide uh, readership or, or and listenership to, to those channels. And so, um, again, the, the kind of creativity and ingenuity, even as someone like that also works a 12-hour day at Whole Foods, right, um, is, is really impressive to me. And uh, is, is something that um, is very present. But uh, people from Mustang, like other Himalayan communities, are also incredibly well-organized well as, um, as social and cultural institutions. So the Kiduk, or the, um, the community social service organizations that exist for different communities in Mustang, are, um, are really uh, attuned to kind of making people continue to commit to each other. And, and sometimes that can even be challenging. You know, again, there's pressure to continue to donate toward uh, different kinds of community causes or to raise money to, to eventually buy real estate in New York for a community center like the Sherpas have with the Sherpa Monastery in Jackson Heights um, or the Tibetans have in another part of Astoria. So um, uh, there are strategies also that tie directly back to village-based forms of civil society. Um, and uh, what the anthropologist and, and a mentor and a friend, Charles Ramble, calls civil religion um, in the case of Mustang that, that continue to act out or, or play out in, um, in the context of New York and between those two sites all the time through, through social media. Um, but it's not to say that this is always neat or easy or that it will... Um, smoothly continue as as the generation of young people from who, who have heritage in Mustang but who have been born and raised in New York are the ones who are you know the the principal adults in the picture you know ten, 20 years from now for instance yeah it's tempting to see families as kind of straddling two distinct worlds and I think um, a lot of earlier social theory might have done that but, I mean, in addition to there perhaps being one fiction book and one nonfiction book contained in The Ends of Kinship, there might also have been one book about immigrants in New York and another book about contemporary life in Mustang. Um, why was it important to you to highlight that these are, in fact, processes and sites that are inextricably linked? And how did you approach capturing it as a singular process? I think how I tried to approach capturing it is through this, um, these two framing um, concepts of Cora uh, and the Cora of migration and, um, and also this idea of the ends of kinship that um, family networks and sort of the braiding of duty and desire that is kinship are inextricably linked and bound up to, to and beyond place. Um, and you're right. I, you know, I could have, there, there could have been two different books and yet, um, each of those books would have, I think, um, uh, missed, um, so many of the ways that social formation, uh, knowledge transmission, you know, the, the joy and the frustration of being part of a family or a community, actually works for, for people from, uh, from Mustang that, that I know and who I care about. Um, and so, uh, again, this idea of ends is not singular. You know, it's, it's all the work that goes into trying to 
notice where places are fraying um, and shore them up or to abandon certain pathways only to, you know, create new, new ways of, of kind of routing or rerouting life uh, and love and belonging such that it makes sense um, to new and unfolding generations of people or across generations of people. And, to the end, you know, to the to the last section of the book too. You know, I I was really struck uh, by and 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 remain really moved by um, both the beauty and the challenges of caring, especially for uh, the eldest and the youngest among people from Mustang in in these moments of as as one of my uh, interlocutors has put it, you know, experiencing a hundred years of change in ten years. Um, and so I think that it would have painted a very different picture, for instance, had I just focused on, let's say, a younger generation who are, you know, real estate agents and accountants and, yes, also nannies and nail technicians and, and grocery store workers in New York. Or if I had only focused on the generation that you might say has been left behind, um, uh, an elder generation still farming, unable to sort of officially culturally retire um, back in Nepal. Um, those things needed to be linked because they're linked in people's actual lives. Yeah, that's great. Um, so if you'll permit me one admittedly impossible question to answer, given everything we've discussed sure. and all, everything you write about in the book, what do you see as the future for Mustang? What do you think it has in store? Oh, um, yeah, that is an impossible question. I mean, I think that I see, um, again, many, uh, many possibilities. You know, at certain moments, I, I share what many in Mustang have said to me, uh, the sentiment of Kirongba Kitongba, which is this sort of Nepali-Tibetan amalgam that basically means either Mustang will be filled with lowland Nepalis or it will be empty. Um, you know, there are moments where I think I've felt like that. Um, but then there are also moments where I feel as if there are many different possible um, nodes of, of resurgence. Um, uh, and, and um, yeah, n- new possibilities for inhabiting old places. Um, you know, COVID has been really interesting in that regard. Uh, it, certainly it's been challenging at many levels, but one thing that folks that, uh, friends that I continue to talk to who are in Mustang now and have, you know, sort of been stuck there for the last seven or eight months, um, uh, people are talking now more openly about, for instance, the, fast, the fact that younger generations um, don't know how to farm or don't, you know, don't know the land and the landscape in the same way that their parents or grandparents did and are actually trying to do something about that at this moment or to take uh, the, the, um, the challenges, the deep challenges, economic um, uh, health, uh, environmental challenges of, uh, of COVID and um, see what positive, you know, forms of, of knowledge transmission um, might take place. Um, then I think that there are much larger forces at work uh, that are that sometimes I have a hard time being uncynical about or 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 despondent about, namely climate change. You know, I mean, um, Mustang is indeed 
like so much of the Himalaya, drastically affected by uh, the changing climate. Um, I have watched with my sort of bare eyes um, the landscapes of um, glaciers changing in Mustang over the 25 years that I've been going to the region. And so imagine how it feels to someone who's 80 or 90 um, looking looking at that. Um, there have been villages who have been needed to be um, relocated or who have been displaced because of um, water shortages. Um, and then there are these larger questions that, that uh, again, uh, most of Nepal is mired in right now, which is the relationship between China and India and how Nepal will continue and, and sensitive border areas like Mustang will continue to figure into that. On the one hand, the, the now, um, you know, built road uh, that goes up to the Kodala and back um, to the border between Mustang and Tibet um, is by all um, accounts, you know, it's, it's poised to be a major trade hub um, and a political and, and economic hub. But uh, there's also this sense, sensitive social history and political history that's at work there um, that makes many people nervous or cautious about what that will look like. Um, and as I, as I do mention in the book, this, this sort of looming question of uranium is scary to me. I mean, uh, and I think it's one of those spaces that not enough people in Mustang are, are really thinking or talking about, politicians are, but, you know, it's really, really hard to wrap your head around what that might mean if you don't have any context for what uranium mining might do or might look like. Um, and so, yeah, those are some of the things that, uh, again, although I am not from Mustang, I will never be from Mustang, I, I care very deeply about this place and its people. And so those are some of the questions that, that keep me up at night. Um, but, uh, but there are such amazing people um, who are uh, at the helm of so many um, good and important things that are, that are happening that I also have a lot of um, hope and curiosity and, and a desire to continue to engage until I'm an old person, uh, if I'm able, uh, in this place. Yeah, I think that's a good place to start wrapping up. Is there anything else you wanted to mention about the book before we do that that I maybe haven't already asked about? Um, I don't think so. Just to say that one of the things I've done to try to make this book um, teachable is uh, to um, create, I've created a website uh, that is specifically sort of geared toward how uh, someone might teach with this book. So it has short back and forth kind of conversations with myself and one of my Dartmouth students and some writing prompts that are built around each section of the book that are trying to get people to think about um, what each of the sections of, of, of this story might tell or, or how they might relate to other people's lives with, with different kinds of backgrounds. Um, so that's out there as a resource. Okay, great. Um, so to, just to finish up, do you have any new projects on the horizon or what are you hoping to explore more in the future? Yeah, I have a few different things um, uh, on the horizon or, or on my plate right now. Uh, in terms of ongoing work in and with Mustang and um, more broadly with Himalayan and Tibetan communities in New York, 
I've continued to work uh, with Nawang, uh, again, who is, is one of um, my closest friends from the region and, and uh, a core relationship in the book, uh, along with colleagues at the University of British Columbia, Mark Turin, a linguist and anthropologist friend um, for many years, um, and uh, one of his graduate students, Maya Dario, along with colleagues at the Endangered Language Alliance, which is an NGO based in New York City. Um, we've done a whole series of uh, uh, video storytelling projects called Voices of the Himalaya that include people from Mustang, but are not just about Mustangis, um, getting at sort of the, on the one hand, the, the linguistic diversity of Himalayan and Tibetan New York, and on the other hand, using that um, sort of uh, video vehicle, video storytelling vehicle as a way to talk about um, migration experiences, work in new places, the the kiduk, the you know the happiness and suffering of of everyday life um, for these communities. And with COVID hitting, and and with um, so many of the places where people from Himalayan and Tibetan New York, including Mustangis, uh, live, being the epicenter of the epicenter in the spring, uh, we worked hard rather quickly uh, to write grants and to put together some uh, a project to help document what we call, on the one hand, the, um, the structural vulnerability and the epidemiological invisibility of these communities in the face of COVID. And so um, we did a series of um, COVID audio diaries, uh, including with someone from, from Mustang, actually a couple of people from Mustang, uh, in which people ranging from nurses to uh, educators to um, students to retired uh, elders talk through their days and talk about what um, lockdown and what experiences of COVID, including having the disease, uh, have been like. And then we did a series of um, virtual ethnographic interviews with a bunch of different community leaders and trying to track um, social media-related uh, knowledge transmission, public health messages, questions, issues of stigma, how COVID has been understood culturally in these communities, sort of within and between um, Asia and North America. Um, and so we're in the process of now trying to... to uh, we did what, what data collection we could sort of through the spring and, and the summer, and now we're trying to to write that up and to make it available both in academic formats and in, in ways and spaces that will be useful, hopefully, to um, uh, Tibetan and Himalayan communities in New York going forward. Um, so, so on the one hand, sort of continued collaborative work in, in those veins and personally, creatively, um, I, you know, I'm, I'm grounded here in Vermont, New Hampshire, in the upper Connecticut River Valley, and I'm, I'm thinking a lot about... Um, uh, uh, the question of what, um, uh, of how longing um, for, you know, for fieldwork, for adventure, for connection to people in place at this COVID moment relates to our, our need for and practices of belonging. So how the one is sort of literally in language um, captured within uh, the other and the relationship between longing and belonging. And so that may sound abstract, but basically what it means is that I'm trying to write sort of short essays that um, move between registers of fiction, nonfiction, and ethnography to, to think about 
that relationship. Um, and I think that that has a lot to do personally with, with my own kind of sense-making process um, that, uh, and relationship-building process that also um, led to and led through the ends of kinship. Uh, yeah, that's great. And I hope if and when any of that comes out in book form, you'll be able to come back on the podcast and talk to us about it. Until then, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time to share your work and insights. Thank you so much, Ben. It's really been a pleasure. So The Ends of Kinship by Sienna Craig uh, was published in 2020 by the University of Washington Press. I'm Benjamin Linder, and this discussion was brought to you by the New Books Network in association with the Mobilities and Methods Lab at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Thanks for listening. See you next time.